I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Today we have uh, Dr. Jacqueline Nobles back with us. Uh, Jacqueline is an emergency critical care specialist, and she was on the podcast a few weeks ago now, but she has come back today to talk with us about some exciting ER cases. Yay. And she and I are recording both in person at her Airbnb right now. So if you notice any changes in audio quality, that's why. This is a new (laughs) thing for us, recording in person. Dr. Greider was kind enough to come and... uh and assist me with some technical challenges. So I'm grateful for that, but it's exciting to do it in person. It is exciting. We have actually not recorded the podcast in person because of the pandemic. At all? Well, we recorded a couple of pilot episodes initially, um, but all the episodes that have ever been released have all been, you know, from my closet in JJ's, you know, like music room. (laughs) Where are you? Uh, I am like my house or my room. Yeah, both. <laughs> it's yellow. Uh, yeah, this is the office slash music room. Mm-hmm. Ah. If you want to, there's like it's guitars got bins, like, on tons the wall of and stuff. When you hear the intro, the music at the beginning, Ben recorded that. Like wow. he composed it. He like came up with it and just made it. He is a jack of all trades, I know, right? that Ben. Where'd you get that guy? <laughs> Auburn. <laughs> yesterday, <laughs> yesterday when we tried to record and had to, we had to cancel and, and then move it to today. Jacqueline was like, "Now, how did y'all get hooked up with the bin?" And I was like, "Oh, <laughs> oh he's JJ's husband." <laughs> I was like, "Cause he's a, it's a good person to have around, right?" <laughs> He is. How did you find this audio engineer? Like, y'all just, he works for free? Yeah. It's like, how fortuitous is that? He's amazing. He doesn't get near enough credit. It's not somebody you find at the Waffle House. Mm -mm, Probably not. (laughs) Although he does like Waffle House. I do, too. I do, too. Very spiritual place. It is. Mm -hmm. It is. Man, I like that uh, the hash browns, like a double hash brown, but I don't like anything on it. Just ketchup. Yeah, no, I like that. I'm not. I'm not into the co- covered, smothered, and chunked or whatever. Yeah. That makes me kind of yeah. a little. Sounds like guy. various stages of vomit. Great. That's a yes. good point. That's a really Anger good point, is. actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Waffle House, please send your complaints directly to <laughs> JJ. Not thank you. Thank you for no. being a hurricane barometer so we I know. know when the It is, and very run. few people know about the Waffle House Index. Thank mm-hmm. you for knowing about that. Look, I really do. When when I think about the Waffle House and I walk, you walk in at 2 a.m. In, in the morning and the drunks, it is very a very similar ambiance to the ER yes. on a Sunday <laughs> afternoon. I can see that, yeah. And I see it, all the people behind the counter, you know, working as hard as they can. And I mean, I, I identify with those people. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever sat there and really watched like the cook and the waitresses and, and everybody, how they all operate together? Because it is a model of efficiency. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I need to make, I need to admit something. I'm, I'm in a, a Waffle House employees Facebook group. <laughs> because you're, have you been employed there? <laughs> also, why do you have an FBI t-shirt on? <laughs> 
Sorry, I just I just noticed. I don't know how. I, it's literally the only letters on the shirt. Yeah, I um, I picked this puppy up. Is at that the a federal bikini inspector t-shirt? Picked okay. this up in the the DC airport. Uh-huh. Um, because I like to travel light now. Just travel yeah. with one one bag. Your one backpack. Bag. Okay. Your like carry on. Yeah. Don't check a bag. Yeah. No. Don't. It, too much time because when I get to the airport, I get there like five minutes right before. That's how I roll. Okay, don't do it at like LaGuardia, but <laughs> you know, most you know smaller airport Huntsville, you're fine. No, I just the like if you I think I think about certain restaurants and the Waffle House is, is sort of a sort of an icon. And I just think, okay, well how how do they how do they sustain this for this long and the employees and so I. I I started doing some some research on it because, like, you like you gotta have you gotta have your shit together to work at Waffle House. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you, you know you can't like be on drugs and mm. um, you know, I mean it's 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 stressful because people get so mad about their food, like mm-hmm. you know, like mad when you can't see Fluffy. The, <laughs> if you mess up their hash browns, they're furious. That's true. And um, yeah, so. If you shave uh, Fluffy's belly for an ultrasound, they get furious. Yeah. They yes. And heaven forbid they have razor burn, you know? Mm. <laughs> I, so <laughs> I always, I always just, I always just think about, you know, how, how veterinary medicine relates to other businesses. Yeah. And, 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 and the Waffle House is just the one that, that really hits the nail on the head for me it's in, in relation to ER. For sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, they triage things. They triage their orders. Yeah. And then the the ordering situation, when they go back and they just call it out. Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. They'll call it out in order. And the cook, just he just knows. He knows. It. They just know what to do. Like, just dun, 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 dun. They have, like, five orders going at the same time. It yeah. is crazy. Well-oiled machine. hmm Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we... We could take some pointers from them. I think so. I mean, yeah, for sure. For sure. I think anybody in the hospitality industry has a very similar job to veterinary medicine. Yeah. For sure. Well, speaking of the ER, we're going to talk about some cases today. All right. You're going to take us through them. Okay. Okay. It's going to be a little bit um, less formal than when we normally go through cases. But as always... Uh, the names of the patients and the owners have been changed. Potentially some small details have been changed to disguise the identity of the case. Uh, but Dr. Nobles is the veterinarian on the case. So she's, yes. she's, uh, she's volunteering to, to let us uh, know what all happened and to critique her. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. So Dr. Nobles, what is the first case you want to talk about? The first case is um, it's a little ten-year-old pug. Strike one. <laughs> Presented to the ER for unilateral scleral hemorrhage. Oh, now for um, for the people listening who are not into veterinary medicine necessarily, who are maybe they're students, they're learning. Yep. What does scleral hemorrhage mean? Well, that means that you got blood in the white of your eye. Gotcha. Why does it always got to be eyeballs? <laughs> Sorry, JJ. You know, it, it's... 
I, I don't know. I kind of, I kind of like eyes. But you know, with pugs, it, it's often an eye. Yeah. Um, now I have a question. Yes, ma'am. Now is this pug? All right. Now you know how they're in in our brachycephalic or smush faced dogs. There's like a there's like a gradient, a continuum of bug-eyedness. Mm. So you got mild all the way up to, you know, if the dog glances hard to one side, the eyeball might fall out. Yep. So where are we on that? Spectrum? I'd say we're moderate. 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 Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. moderate. And he's got a real red eye. Whites of his eye. I would, you know. Just on I, one side. You know what? Yeah. Just okay. on one side. I would, I would describe it as maroon. Maroon. Okay, so like impressive. I just, yeah, I wanna I wanna specify that. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it and has Mississippi State Maroon. <laughs> In fact, that is a yes. description. Okay. Very good, JJ. Very good. That's exactly how I would describe it. And it happened all of a sudden? That that was the chief complaint. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. No history of known trauma. Huh. huh. I don't think the dog ever left the uh the couch. JJ, what questions do you have about the pug? Yeah, hit me, JJ. So far. Is it known to run into the wall sometimes on its own by accident? Not according to the owner. Yeah, no history of trauma. Mm. So uh, let's build our differential diagnoses. Let's do it. So, uh, okay, I'll throw out number one. Trauma. Do you dog. want to know my physical exam findings? Uh, Yeah, let's do that first. Okay. okay. All right. There's the, the maroon scleral hemorrhage. There's some pigmentary keratitis. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which for people listening, that's just pigment on the eyes. Pugs have chronically dry eyes because they can't close them all the way. Pretty good nares. Could could breathe fairly well. Heart and lungs sounded normal. Ambulatory aware. All vital signs were were essentially normal. Okay. So like a normal pug, otherwise normal pug, one red eye, one red eye. Interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, so the first differential that I'll throw out is trauma that the owner doesn't know about. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's, that's good. That's That's good. And, and I I do, I want to point out the dog was wearing a neck collar. Like a, like a, do you mean just like a, like a, that a leash would attach to? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So maybe like, uh, was he pulling real hard on the collar type thing? Like a we see mild that strangulation. Some, we see that sometimes, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've seen it in yeah. a King Charles Cavalier puppy. Was it sure. on tight or was it like the two finger rule? That's good two finger, JJ. Good two finger. I can't say I double checked it, but I wasn't. I wasn't overtly concerned. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That's a good question. Go ahead. All right, so what what about you? What you got? Differential. Um, does the dog have any history of having dry eye or allergies or rubbing its face on things, anything like that? It does have a history of allergies that the owner reports seem to be well controlled at this time, not on any medications. Whose phone is that? It's fine. Don't worry. <laughs> We'll, we'll leave it as okay. Well, what about so? I'm thinking like if it's maroon colored, mm. it seems like there's bleeding in there, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna say things that could cause your blood vessel in your eye to pop, uh, mm. blood pressure spike. Ooh, I like it. Okay, <laughs> I like it. So something like that. Yeah. Uh, lack of clotting factors. I think that's a great differential. 
Absolutely. So anything that makes you not clot well. Yeah. Beautiful. I'm going to go ahead and say those are kind of my top ones. The coagulopathy is kind of like an umbrella for like several things. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. And so when I looked at the eye, the eye itself, okay, and I'm differentiating the eye from the sclera, the eye itself looked quiet. Okay. Okay. The, the pupil was not myotic. It, what I mean is I didn't think there was, was any inflammation in the eye itself, but I saw the scleral hemorrhage. So, you know, I, I asked or recommended that, that we check a little bit of blood work to be on the safe side. Cool. Yeah. And I checked the, the coag. So there are a couple of different ways to do that in, in practice. Um, some people have point of care diagnostic machines that can measure your PT and uh, which stands for your prothrombin time or your APTT. And each of those are designed to measure the intrinsic and extrinsic limbs of, of your coagulation cascade. And um, some of the newer technology, such as thromboelastography or TEG, allows you to, to go a step further and and really look at the clot from the, the beginning to the end. And what it does, it, it, inc- it includes fibrinolysis. So that can be really helpful in some cases. Um, but we didn't have that in this case. I, but I, I checked the CBC chem, serum chemistry, all, all normal because platelets are another differential for yeah. that. But the coags were both off the chart. Mm. Yeah. Okay. The PT is greater than 100 and the PTT is greater than 300. And... I point that out because you don't, when you see that, there are only a couple of possibilities. Um, you know, a, a severe coagulopathy or DIC, okay, uh, or anticoagulant rhodinocyte toxicosis. And Dr. Nobles, when you're talking about those numbers, we're talking about in units of seconds to clot, right? Yes. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, Super taking a super long time to clot mm. off the chart of clotting. Off the chart. Okay, that's exactly right. Okay, so based on that information, I I we had diagnosed our pug with a coagulopathy, and um, I spoke to the owner, and she informed me that um, there was some rat bait outside. Uh oh, rat row. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, he may have gotten into it. Okay. I said, yeah, he may have. Yeah. He may have. So um, he was treated with fresh frozen plasma mm-hmm. that has the, the vitamin K dependent clotting factors present, 27910. Once we treated him with the fresh frozen plasma, his coagulation parameters um, went back into the normal range. And we typically discharge them on on some oral vitamin K mm-hmm. for the next couple of weeks. So uh, that's that's what we did with, with that patient, and uh, he did quite well. That's awesome. I have Wait. a couple of questions mm. for you, Dr. Okay. to follow up. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk really quickly mm. about some kind of our, our broad differentials for coagulopathy. We mentioned rodenticide. What else, what else is on our list? Hepatopathy, so liver issues. Liver issues. You can have inherited clotting disorders. Um, um, like hemophilia. Hemophilia A, hemophilia B, thrombocinia, which is a, a platelet issue. But um, 
You can have a perineoplastic coagulopathies. Okay. Uh, Meaning like we got cancer hiding in the body and as a result, we're we're having clotting problems from that. Exactly. You can have uh, trauma-induced coagulopathies. Okay. Okay. Um, Any sort of injury to the endothelium could potentially induce a a coagulopathy. But some of the times when we we can inadvertently cause a coagulopathy is let's say you've got a patient that's had a severe trauma, so they've lost blood. They're they're probably lost a fair amount of clotting factors, and then you go and you volume resuscitate them with with crystalloids, and so you dilute out the clotting factors that they have present, and so that's that's where we see some of the the trauma induced coagulopathies as okay. well. Okay. So in responding to uh, the emergency, trying to uh, get the, their blood pressure back up, get them exactly. stabilized, we accidentally yeah. dilute them. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. So those are always things that you want to keep in the back of your mind um, when you're resuscitating a patient. Because, you know, we think of fluids as so benign, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but, you know, you are administering um, a medication that, that could have some negative effects, right? Yeah. You're absolutely right. People think of fluids as a benign thing, but they can. Yeah. Uh, I mean, everything you do medically has consequences. I was talking to someone else yesterday and I, I, I said something like, having a body is like really difficult and inconvenient. <laughs> yeah. like everything you do to it has consequences. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, so um, and then for this little pug... Luckily, the owner knew of a potential rodenticide exposure. Yeah. Say the owner was like, I don't know of anything that we could have gotten into. Would that have changed your management of the case at all? Or would you be like, nah, we're, we, need to, we need to do blood products anyway and vitamin K to cover? Yeah. That's a great question. In the acute setting, it would not have changed my uh, management or treatment of the case. Okay. Now... Let's say this was a young dog. Mm-hmm. Um, then I would ask myself, okay, well, what am I missing? There's something else going on here, so I need to I need to go back and and do further diagnostics, looking for cancer, or I, do I need to send out um, a blood panel to Cornell uh, to to test for factor deficiencies? Okay, yeah, because um, yeah. I've I've run into to that before with with a hemophiliac, and those are those are crazy cases. Yeah. Wow. And, and sometimes uh, the owner doesn't know that anything is wrong oh, until yeah. just some one-off thing starts yeah. the bleeding. Exactly. That's so crazy. And now being on, being on the ER, I think it probably depends on what ER setting you're working in. If you're receiving the case, maybe at a teaching hospital, you probably would keep the case all the way through to discharge. But say you're staffing a local ER overnight, this is a case that you're going to stabilize and send back to the regular vet. So some of those things you might have to wait till Monday to send out through the regular vet. Correct. Okay. Absolutely. As far as blood products go, you guys selected fresh frozen plasma for this one. What other products could have been used in case practitioners didn't have access to that? Could you use fresh whole blood for this? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that'd be a great option. And I wish we had, the opportunity to to use it more it's because i do think fresh whole blood you know especially in in polytraumas and patients that are 
acutely bleeding, that's the best thing to replace, you know, with, I mean, we can try to do component therapy, but I mean, you know, fresh whole blood is, is the best. It's just the, the challenge of getting a dog that's been screened to the hospital to then the staff to bleed it. And then, oh my gosh, do you have the anticoagulant? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) All right. Did you, do you know how to bleed it? Okay. Like you have to reteach people each time and you may have a protocol and it may be in a notebook on, on a, on a shelf. It should be, please do that. Please, but please do that. It, you know, you don't review that till till just in the moment right. when you need it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I do. Uh, As someone who has had to go get a friend's dog with like, we're like, oh, we need it real fast, yo. And like trying to find the supplies. Which bin did y'all put the supplies yeah. in? You know, like what? Like, yeah. I know we ordered blood bags. Where, where are they? I'm yeah. right now. We don't know where they are, Doc. I'm like, wow. The fuck? Anyway, so yeah. I mean, I you know, just that's you've just been the there. Guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've been there. So, uh, <laughs> you know, but thankfully, you know, we do have availability. A lot of uh, a lot of of our staff, our technicians, assistants. Um, they they do have um, dogs that volunteer to donate blood, mm-hmm. and we always want to make sure those patients are screened for infectious diseases uh, prior to doing that. And um, given cookies, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and so it's it's um, it's really beneficial though to have that blood there. And usually, if if we don't have it from a a donor in house, we can order it. And we usually order packed red blood cells or plasma. Um, there are also a couple of other, um, you can, you can order platelets, um, mm-hmm. which you don't, we don't use all that often. Uh, they have such a short half-life in circulation. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a few instances where it's nice to have them. Yeah. Um, cryoprecipitate is another that, um, that we use, and that's really beneficial in dogs such as uh, Dobermans that have von Willebrand deficiency. Okay, you can get a lyophilized version of that, and and so it's it's really helpful to have those products on hand when you have patients that are experiencing any any type of coagulopathy. Yeah. So for this little pug that uh, got into the anticoagulant rodenticide. So we talked about fresh frozen plasma and fresh whole blood. blood yeah. Uh, but um, let's see, you couldn't use packed red blood cells because they don't have clotting factors in them. Correct. Uh, we wouldn't want to use the platelets because it's not a platelet issue. Right. So, so really the fresh whole blood and the fresh frozen plasma are really the two yes. for this. Yes. Gotcha. So I know there's uh, different types of rodenticides. Can we kind of quickly go over those? That's a great question, JJ, and I'm glad you bring that up. There are a few different types of rodenticides that our pets are exposed to. Anticoagulant rodenticide is probably the most common form that we see. However, there's also cholecalciferol or vitamin D3, I believe that is um, is used in some rat baits that causes basically mineralization of, of all the, the tissues in the body and can lead to renal failure in our pets. And then there's also bromethylene, which um, is a um, 
a drug that is found in some rat baits that uh, uncouples oxidative phosphorylation and mm. caught for the I test. I am so impressed that you just like pulled that out of here. Like we you normally, JJ and I do extensive research before we present a case. This one, we just literally plugged up the fucking microphone. Don't you know, like phosphorylation of the something. But bromethylene will, will, will lead to um, swelling in the brain. So that, that is one that, that, you know, all of them can potentially cause fatal, have fatal consequences. But um, it's good to know. And I, and I always ask my clients, you know, do you have the box or do you have the ingredient list? Because that can be helpful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, they, sometimes they'll just bring you like the, the bait itself and it's green. I'm like, well, they're all green. Right. <laughs> that doesn't do me a damn bit of good. We can't take it to the CSI lab. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't have, uh, you know, spectro chromatography or, or something. You know, yeah. I don't have that in the back. You know, my tech doesn't do that anymore. Right. That one left for the Waffle House. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, so those are, those are good. And it, you know, it's good to know because you would, you would treat it differently with the cholecalciferol. Obviously we want to put those patients on IV fluids and, and keep an eye on their renal values. The, uh, bromethylene patients, we typically will induce vomiting and monitor them for the next 24 hours. Dr. Greider, and, and I did too, the, the kind of the first thing that came to my mind was, all right, some sort of strangulation, trauma. You know, the, the thing that, that's always been beneficial to me in emergency medicine is, you know, prove myself wrong. And by doing that, it has served me well, you know, because the like, like, like what's the likelihood that that dog had a coagulopathy? Like if, you know, that, that, I mean, that was the lowest on our, our differential list. And it, and it turned out to, to be exactly the diagnosis. So my, my point is play, you know, playing your own devil's advocate, um, can be, can be really beneficial. And, uh, I try to continue to do that in, in all cases. I like it. So make sure you go over that differential list with yourself. Yeah. That way you don't get tunnel vision. Yeah, that five seconds you've got before you're heading into that next room. Mm-hmm. Go over that differential <laughs> with yourself, argue with yourself um, while you're listening to the owner talk to you about chronic vomiting and diarrhea that's been going on for three months. Right, on emergency, because yeah. it became an emergency today. Today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the number, the number of cushionoid dogs that I felt like I probably diagnosed on the ER, I mean, couldn't definitively because like we can't we can't do that testing on the weekend but it's not an emergency but it's you like, can now you can now because because let me tell you what i'm all about the baseline cortisol oh but you can't diagnose cushions with baseline cortisol you you can you can stem them oh and you're saying stem them and run it in house yes hmm you can't look now. I'm, Dr. Barron is going to call into the podcast and yell at oh, us about using the point of control. I love her. <laughs> no, I um, I'm, I, I will, I, let me let me preface this. A, I do love Dr. Barron. Uh, B, I would not, if I had a choice, run a stem on ER. I would send it out. Right. But let me tell you what, I run the hell out of that baseline cortisol. 
to I mean, out, like nobody's business. To rule out Addison. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, sure. Yeah. Lord. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay. So, have we fully covered our Pugalicious case? Yeah. We Well, and we give serenity to everything for good measure. Okay. So, he probably got a little serenity for it. Just to make sure he yeah. didn't vomit up yeah. that rap. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. If he, no, I'm just kidding, y'all. If he was bleeding, that rat poison was digested a long time ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so don't, I am just messing around. Yes, Serenia, <laughs> probably the wonder drug. It's the, it's the new dexamethasone. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I caught my, one of my technicians came to me tonight and she's like, hey, you know how to make a label? I'm like, ooh, I stopped learning how to do that sort of thing couple of years ago because she she wanted to make a label for some serenial nasal drops i'm like what kind of voodoo are you doing over there <laughs> mm-hmm. she's was like, it for congested well, it's cat, for a congested cat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. you can't use that for congested yeah. cats you sure can so um if you can get the nasal drop into the cat. in the cat yeah mm-hmm. yeah good luck okay well i think we have time for one more case one more case at least one probably just one Okay. Okay. So what is the next case? So the next case is my little 10-year-old Sheltie. Perfect little angel. Very well taken care of. Mm -hmm. Presented to me for inability to walk and shaking. She could stand, but she was just just really weak. And she was panting. Hmm. Um, she stopped eating about a day ago. She does have a history of Cushing's disease or what we like to call hyperadrenocorticism mm-hmm. <laughs> that is treated with veteral, which is known as trilostane. And she's been on that medication probably for about three months. Okay. She did have a dental. Mm-hmm about a month ago and had some blood work at that time. The The blood sugar was a little low. Huh. Uh, like how low? About 70. 70? Okay. So she was taken off the trilostane, then put back on the trilostane after a period of time, unknown. And when she presented to me, she she was panting, she was weak, but she could stand with assistance. The gums were pink, heart and lungs sounded normal, abdomen was soft on palpation. Uh, she was not emaciated. She had a pretty good body condition score. And Dr. Grider had a question. Oh. I have so many questions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like me too, right? Do we know? Okay. What, so the patient was taken off trilostane. Yep. In response to the blood sugar being low or something different? Nope. I'm going to go with, that's what I gathered from the information that I got from the clients. Who gotcha. I just want to point out. Sometimes it's wrong. It is. The owners were two medical professionals in the human field. That makes it tough. For sure. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. So the trilostate was stopped, we think, because the blood sugar was low. Correct. Then restarted again because... Panting? Because panting. Because panting. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and were the electrolytes normal on the blood work from the dentistry? 
just the blood sugar was low? Correct. Per the owner? Per the owner. But we don't have it, like, in front of us. Got it. Nor do we have the, the stem by which she was diagnosed. With Cushing's. Correct. Gotcha. Well, but that's not unusual on the ER. Usually you've got, like, a sick animal and then, like, an owner-delivered history that may oh. or may not be accurate. Yeah. So. Most of <laughs> like, like, you know, my technicians come back and they tell me stuff and I'm like, hmm. I just, I, I, I hear it sometimes and sometimes I don't, you know, cause I know I'm going to get another story when I go back in the room. Yeah. I, I don't know which one's going to be right uh, or if either of them are correct. Um, the truth is usually in the middle and, you know, just based on her physical exam, I was worried about possibly, uh, some sort of issue with her spine or her back. Um, now Shelties aren't a breed that I see that, you know, have a lot of orthopedic issues or really neurologic issues. But, um, but that was, that was a concern. I did. I told the, I told the owners that, you know, I think that what we should do is just, um, just get some baseline blood work, some x-rays and then, and then get started. When I checked the blood glucose on a glucometer, which is a, just a point of care test, much like um, someone would use at home to check their own blood sugar, it was low. Like L-O? Like L-O. <laughs> JJ, how, how low is L-O? Is that, uh, uh, is, is that it, negative? Is that in what, the negative? What's the lowest you've seen on a, on a glucometer readout? Well, low, but I mean, I, it depends on the good commenter because sometimes they'll have different ranges of mm, like yeah. that it'll actually read. But I want to say probably the the one that I remember was in the 30s, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm. I've seen them in the 30s, too. Mm-hmm. So if it's L.O., L-O. that's not great. Mm-mm. It's not great. Okay. Not great. Okay. Anything else unusual in the lab work? Uh, well, then I got my chemistry. Oh, then you got your chemistry. Okay. Then I got the chemistry and the CBC, which is fairly unremarkable. The The serum chemistry, I did notice the, the blood glucose read 28. <laughs> that's, that's low. That's no bueno. That, that, Hello. That, that's, I that's, with the handheld glucometer. Uh, okay. Because the, the clients were concerned initially with the, u- the utilization of the handheld glucometer um, being spurious. Okay. And I said... Absolutely. That's why I always double check myself. Um, and I let them know that the the blood glucose on the serum chemistry panel was concurrently low. The There was a mild azotemia. I actually ran a baseline cortisol, guys. Girl. <laughs> and it was 4.6. 4.6 is normal. Yes. So I think the owner's when they brought her in, were initially concerned that she could have developed Addison's because of the trilostane therapy. Girl, that's the road I thought you were leading us down. Oh, shit. All right. Damn. We should have done differentials first, but okay. Oh, well, so bad. it's fine. Back to the baseline cortisol. Hmm. Less than two is abnormally low, right? That's right. That's okay. right. That The Sharon Center's paper, less, less than, than two. two. So hers is greater than two, so we can rule out Addison's Boom. disease, right? Boom. Yes. Nice. That's and why Dr. Nobles it's a, it's runs a, this test. It's a great 
time to talk about differentials for hypoglycemia, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it, JJ. Hit me. You made JJ nervous. Oh, my bad. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So so I'm going to throw a differential out there. How old did you say this dog was? Uh, Ten. Ten. Okay. My my first thought is a dog with blood sugar in the 20s that's not dead. Insulinoma. All right. JJ, what you got? That was what I had. Damn it. <laughs> okay. No, and, you, and you guys, you guys are on absolute, absolutely on the, <laughs> on the right track. I mean, and, and I typically don't see blood sugars that low in patients that, that aren't seizuring. Um, two pounds or something. Exactly. You know? And, and certainly we will see hypoglycemia in patients with sepsis. We'll see it in patients with Addison's or hypoadrenocorticism. Um, you can see it in, in, in puppies and kittens that have low glycogen stores. Um, there are a, a, and one of the most common reasons we see hypoglycemia is usually um, iatrogenic insulin overdose by, by a, a pet owner. Okay. Like so, for a diabetic pet. For a di- yes, yeah. for a diabetic pet. But when a, when a patient walks in with a blood sugar that low, and, you know, insulinoma is definitely a top differential. And so I explained that to the owners and we, we, I did a, I did an abdominal ultrasound. Okay. okay? And what we're doing there is we're, we're looking at the pancreas, which can be difficult because the pancreas is a bit of an elusive organ on the, on the ultrasound. Um, you know, you, you can identify it, uh, but, I've never been able to diagnose a, an insulinoma based on an ultrasound uh, myself. Now, I'm sure there are radiologists that, that probably could, but I know, I remember during my residency, they, you know, if, if we did an ultrasound and we didn't see anything, then we might do a CT scan. Yeah. Because aren't they very small? Yeah. Okay. They can be very, very difficult. Or if you, you may just go in and explore. Oh, like a exploratory surgery. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, the other thing that you can do to try to confirm this, when the blood sugar is is less than 60, you can draw a blood sample to measure insulin levels. Now, sometimes I find those helpful. Sometimes I don't because the if a patient has been hypoglycemic persistently for a certain period of time, their insulin levels will sometimes re-equilibrate. So they're, the inverse of the ratio that you would expect is is not as great as what the reference is there. Okay. So it, you're like, oh, this doesn't fit the numbers yeah. that are published. And so, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, that it's not an insulinoma. It just doesn't fit the numbers that were, that were published. So that was my number one differential and remains my number one differential. So I spoke to the the clients and, and said, look, you know, I, uh, my recommendation is that we start on some, some dextrose intravenously, and typically I will give those patients uh, a steroid in addition to the the D5W uh, because once you start treating that hypoglycemia, it, it just seems like you're chasing your tail, and you you know you are chasing a number to some degree, but in some of these patients, they're still having seizures or symptoms, you know, twitching. And, um, you know, you start them on that 5% dextrose and you can't get them off. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's such a challenge. And, and you know, in, in human medicine, sometimes we use glucagon and we, we've done that in veterinary medicine, but it's fairly expensive. Mm-hmm. So I, I will give those patients a injection of, of dexamethasone SP in order to try to try to raise their blood sugar. There are a couple of other medications that they typically you have to get compounded that you, you can use to try to raise the blood sugar. But <clears throat> unfortunately I wasn't able to get her off of the D5W and mm-hmm. they elected not to move forward with additional imaging or surgery. So she was sent home on, on palliative care. And that's what makes those cases challenging. Um, if you can catch them early, you know, I, I remember I had one Dalmatian in my residency that, um, that was sent to surgery and had a partial pancreatectomy and she did well for a year or so after. Yeah. 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 What is an insulinoma? Very good question, JJ. Insulinoma is a uh, tumor of the pancreas and specifically the the insulin producing cells of the pancreas are those the the beta beta cells beta, yeah the mm-hmm. beta cells and so they um, they end up producing uh, much more insulin than than's needed and that results in a low blood sugar. So the test that you mentioned when we're measuring the insulin level, what you were describing was a ratio. So are you taking the insulin level and comparing it to what the blood sugar is exactly? And then there's like a, a, a documented ratio that says over this amount or over this ratio we, is definitely insulinoma. Or is, con- they would consistent say consistent because nobody likes to, no. to say for certain. Correlate with clinical findings. Yeah. <laughs> See comment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I got a pathology report today that says favors carcinoma. I'm like, bitch, you know that's a carcinoma. I told you that in the history, and I looked at the slides before I sent it. (laughs) Come on. I just got one. I just got one on a cat that was like, it's either a spindle cell tumor or a mass cell tumor. And I was like, those are two different things. The slime like, not even in the same thing. umbrella of yeah. thing. Round cell, spindle cell. Like, it's one of those two. Oh, great. You really, I want my money back. I know. Damn it. I could have yeah. told you that. Now I'll, I'll, now I, I, I'll admit this. Like if I get, if I get a report like that back, I'll, I'll be like, it, no. I I want my money back or I want a credit. Get the pathology because, on the phone. Yeah. Because <laughs> this this is not gonna work. Like, because imagine if we did that. Like, and I I mean I, I'm sure we've all worked with people that you know, well, it could be this, 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 or this. What's your why even here? You know, I, I mean you know, I, I I just I don't I I don't ride the fence and um I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it could be good or bad depending on the yeah, circumstance. Yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> like, like, like life, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's see. JJ, what questions about insulinoma do we not cover? I was kind of trying to think of them as we went. Why are steroids used to manage insulinomas? Steroids will typically... Um, cause or induce hyperglycemia. And, and that's one of the reasons that, that we use them. 
uh, in these patients. We, you know, I, I try not to use them at an immunosuppressive dose. Typically, you don't have to. Um, Basically, you're using the steroid to kind of make the pet insulin resistant. Like, <laughs> yes, like uh, we're going to use the steroid side effects against exactly. this tumor. Exactly. <laughs> the crap we don't usually like to yeah. happen, we're trying to make it happen in this. Exactly. Stomach. Got it. I mean, there steroids. People are always down on steroids. Steroids save a lot of lives. We okay. We um, this has not aired yet in real life okay? okay but by the time this episode airs it, it will have aired and we we talked about hospice care um related to a specific case okay and uh we were talking about the steroid pendulum and ah. i was saying how i felt like when i was in school and since we are contemporaries yes. when you were in school it seems like the steroid pendulum when we were there, had swung firmly into the don't ever use them category. Yeah. And then when I got out, I was like, but wait, <laughs> I need to use them a lot. What yeah. are y'all talking about? Like, <laughs> yeah, but they work. I know. <laughs> you know, I feel like... Um, I, did, I, it's I, like I, a I, drug company had paid them bitches to, to say, say, don't use steroids. Yeah. Well, I firmly remember. It's not like I feel like this happened. It literally just happened. <laughs> Where a senior clinician, more than one at at that school, was like, those people that are like, don't ever let an animal die without the benefit of steroids are like misguided. And I'm like, no, they're not. (laughs) Definitely don't let them die without steroids. Like, it makes them feel better. What are you doing? Like, I don't understand. I feel like an individual that would make that statement didn't actually manage any primary cases like in the real in the RW the real world or even in the teaching hospital or even in the teaching hospital cuz i mean i i mean you remember Dougie Matt yeah Dougie Matt used some steroids yes she did and <laughs> and and i mean you know that's you know and that's that's one of the places you know i yeah i used more steroids on critical care than i did medicine really <laughs> yeah yeah so I guess like uh, even today, I mean, and I'm now, you know, like I'm not a spring chicken. I we, I mean, we've been we around some, a minute, yeah. some time behind us now, you yeah. know, even now when I contemplate steroid use for a case, I experience anxiety. Of course, not really saying anything. I experience anxiety about like most stuff, but <laughs> you know, uh, it's, you know, it's funny. You know, it's what? funny when I use an inset. I can't, the, the amount of anxiety. Now, steroids, you don't think twice. Yeah. Don't even think twice. Yeah. Inset? Ooh. Because the, like, gastric perforation? What, like, okay, what are we using these days? Like, I remember Remedil. Remedil <laughs> has historically worked. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go with Remedil. You know what? I'm not going to do twice a day. That's too dangerous. I'm going to go, like, 3.7 mg per kg once a day. <laughs> But only three days. <laughs> I'm going to use once a day Remedil because that's what we used in junior surgery. <laughs> like, this is the only answer I know how to know. <laughs> I mean, I get it. Like, that's where I am. And then, and then, like, you're talking to me about a cat, and I'm like, oh, we don't use those in cats. Um, I'm sorry. Like, like the, the neuter scooter does, but... Young cats, yeah, you yeah, probably find. Yeah, but we don't. The we, cats you see on ER, maybe not. Yeah, 
And like the block cat thing, and then like oh girl. I, so I've seen, I've seen critical care specialists take put CE talks on that are like never treat a blocked cat with meloxicam, never treat a blocked cat without meloxicam, <laughs> and everywhere in between. And I remember one of them, I raised my hand. This was when I was a brand new vet, okay? okay? I raised my hand, and he called me, and I was like, yes, sir. I want to go back to the statement you said about always use meloxicam in a block cat, because I did it, and I got in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> that was before I understood in life that, like, as an adult, you can't really get in trouble. trouble. I mean, well, maybe, like, with... The FBI, you could yeah. get in trouble, yeah. or, like, yeah. or the taxes people, yeah. you know, like whoever. But yeah. like, truly, I mean, you get a board complaint, right? You know, but but like, anyway, but, yeah. But anyway, he didn't release. He didn't. He yeah. was just like, well, this is just um, this is how what whoever trained me, right? <laughs> this is how they did it. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Anyway. And, no, what do you got to do? No, I just think it's funny because like. <laughs> You're that way with steroids, and I'm that way with insects. <laughs> but it's it's funny. I, I work with a younger grad right now in the ER, and 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 she's also much more ready to to pick up an insect than she is a steroid. And and the thing the thing that because because we run into these cases where I need to use a steroid. Like you got a cat, young cat with a fever. Let's work it up. You got 3,000? Come on, baby. Let's do it. If not, you can get some doxy, some Dexess pain, a slap on the ass. And <laughs> That makes me feel a lot better that you just said that. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Anyway, okay. it, but what I don't need you to do is give them an insect, and then I can't give, and then they come, and guess what? They're still not eating, and they still don't feel good. Right. Well, that's because you didn't give them the steroid. That fever's an origin. It'll get better with a steroid. Sure will. And they, they'll eat. Yeah, they will. They will eat. And it's an anti-emetic. Mm-hmm. I mean... It's really... You, you know what else you should give them? Serenity. <laughs> and B12. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I go, Serenity is so fast. Just make your hands. Yeah. Put the Serenity yeah. right in that cat. No, I, and you know what? Like, I was like all about Serenity, and I still love Serenity, but it, I always think about, oh man, what if I'm nauseous? What if you're nauseous? And it's a an, good anti-emetic, but not a, doesn't eliminate nausea. So I'm always like, oh, let me add some Zofran just in case, you know, like a parvo puppy or something. So like, wait, let's go back to that for a second. So Serenia prevents vomiting, but it does not ease the experience of nausea. Well, like that's in, in humans. The, uh -huh. the reason it wasn't approved, I think, in people with on chemo uh -huh. is it, it eliminated emesis. Sure. But it didn't completely completely eliminate their nausea oh i didn't know that yeah and so i i you know have you ever been like sick and need to vomit girl yeah and then i was and then like you can't oh yeah okay and i was like oh my god that'd be terrible yeah and so i think about that sometimes because when you talk to to humans and i know they're not dogs but sure like there are best pregnant pregnant women are like zofran's the best anti a medic, you know, anti-nausea mm -hmm. medicine I've ever had. And so for, for cases where I'm really struggling, I mean, that's, that's kind of my, that's kind of my go-to. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not as easy as Serenia cause it's, you know, you have to dose it Q8, Q12, but. And it's um, expensive still, right? 
or has it come down? I think it's come down. Come down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I really do. And so um, that is that is something I think practitioners should should have and, and keep on their shelf and yeah. utilize because because I I use it quite frequently. Yeah, I think I've used it just a couple of times over the years, yeah. but I've never worked in a practice that stocked, stocked it really. It, yeah. uh, not a general practice anyway. But yeah. um, if the price on it has come down, then that's definitely something that um, that can change. Yeah. Um, you mentioned parvo puppies. Um, I never knew that about Serenia, but now that you say that, it makes sense because those parvo puppies would stop vomiting on Serenia, but they would still have that, you know, that look to them. Yeah. And so without Zofran, um, what I had gone to was putting them on a medicalopramide CRV exactly. and doing the combo. And it was like my Serenia only ones didn't do as good as the one with the combo. Exactly. So then I just went straight through the combo. So that's so interesting. Yeah. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. It's funny that we have to study human safety models and animals, but we have to use people's experiences to study how medicines affect animals experiences. That's right? so funny. Isn't it? I never thought but, about that. But before. I always like, and again, I mean, that I know that's not scientific, but well, I always try to think about it from, the patient's perspective and, Mm -hmm. and, and try to think or experience, like, what are they experiencing? How does it feel? Is this, you know, cause, cause I think as, as we, as we age and we, we perfect the, the art of our practice, you know, it's, it's not a matter. It's not a matter of using a plethora of drugs. It's a matter of using the drugs that you know, that work. Mm -hmm. Cause I see so many people like all this stuff, like, and at the end of the day, you know, you got a dog with IBD. What's it need? Steroids. Steroids. <laughs> all right. You can, you can push your foot around with all these, you know, uh, meprazole and metronidazole and all that, you know, and probiotics. But what's it need? Steroid. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So. Uh, Unless it's diabetic and then it needs prayer. Amen <laughs> to that. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, it's time for us to wrap oh. this episode. JJ, is there anything you want to add or questions or anything like that before we wrap? Um, the only thing I thought of, and of course, it came into my brain way too late, was in the beginning, we were talking about the differentials. I thought about the uh, the artificial sweetener that I can't remember the name of off the top of my head Xylitol, right now. Xylitol, girl. Thank you. Yeah, that was a possibility. That's a great differential oh, girl, that for is hypoglycemia. Good. Hell yeah. Yeah. It just, I'm going to buy you a Waffle House. <laughs> Xylitol toxicity. Yeah. JJ, yeah. I mean, like everything else in my life, it pops in my head way too late. I'm like, but. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> if you'd have seen that patient in person, though, you would have thought of it in time to like mention it, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe, or it could have been two days later, and I'm like, "How about why don't you think of that two days ago?" Because my brain's so <laughs> <laughs> xylitol toxicity. I didn't yeah, even bring girl. it up when I was talking about differentials. Um, this is why when we do cases, we like I literally go through like textbook chapters and outline them and stuff. Are you serious? Girl, yeah, because okay. we got to make sure that we present accurate information. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, I feel like we do. Uh, I we try really hard. Yeah, too. <laughs> we try really hard. So, okay, well, that's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you so much for being here again, Doctor Noble. Always a pleasure. Yes, we enjoyed it immensely.
And Dr. Nobles is going to join us again for the snack episode next week. So be sure to join us for that. Mm -hmm. If you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram, and it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Hi, guys. Just a reminder that the Alabama Veterinary Technician Association Fall CE Meeting is going to be October the 23rd, and it is going to be a virtual meeting. I'm one of the presenters, and I hope to see you there.